I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Keep the money where the money is, Lawrence. <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the front three. Your front three this week is me, Adam Bolt. We've also got Lawrence McKenna here. Hello, how are you doing? And Statman Dave himself. You're lucky to get on this podcast, Boltwood, after all the, the messing around with the mic last week. Listen, listen, I may or may not have had an audio snafu, I believe is the technical term. Um, Lawrence McKenna fixed it. It was amazing. Lawrence. Yeah, I may... <laughs> so funny. I may have thought I recorded last week's audio through my headphones sent the file to Lawrence McKenna begging him to fix it. Well, um, that, that's the thing. You didn't send it to me, but you just said, my God, the recording is so bad. And I'd obviously downloaded the recording on my end from the same server and listened to it and was like, God, Boltwood's audio standards must be so high. I was like, yeah. this this guy must be like, he, must, he wants studio quality at every level. So I put it into audition and I was like, okay, here we go. I'll try my best. I'll put it through some voice, uh, voice uh, decoders. Like, we'll see what we can get here. And it came out and it sounded a bit crisper, but I was like, not really much difference because it already sounds pretty good. Send it back to Adam. Adam gets in the WhatsApp and he's like, and I basically said to Adam, I was like, I can't believe it. This software is completely free. Like this actually sounds really good. Oh my God. It actually sounds like you've recorded this on the microphone. I thought you turned really echoey, disembodied headphone audio into professional, crisp-sounding microphone quality. It was, it was. Um, I was literally blown away. I was like, "There's nothing this man can't do." Then I realised I just fucked it up and I used the wrong audio recording. But um, it's so my, good. I, you just said it there, Dave. My, my mind's still on the honeymoon. Two months after I've come back. I'm yeah, sloppy in it, Boltwood. You'll be back but in I'm the back game now. in about two weeks, mate. You like? You like I'm, I'm back in the game now, there. mate. I'm back in the game people now. People do still want to know. They want to. There was a lot of people, Boltwood, that uh, said in the thread, "I really want to hear more about Boltwood's beautiful honeymoon." Uh, I've actually kind of weirdly, because of the situation, I've kind of forgotten about it in a way like I had, <laughs> what memories it feels <laughs> no as in like oh well she'd say the same because the last two months has been so kind of monotonous and it's all we've known yeah. it's really it's really hard to almost like take yourself back to so we are looking through photos every couple of days going oh wasn't that lovely oh that was nice remember that but um this is such I a bizarre the rest of my life with you <laughs> yeah and there's a bit of that from her a little bit but it's sure. such a like abrupt change to go from riding around the Bali countryside on a moped to literally like, oh, you can't leave your house anymore. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, it's, that it's must, a bizarre. Do you, you regret coming back? Do you regret coming back? Or? Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. It, it had to be done. I think if we'd have stayed out there any longer, we would have got stuck. Which. Uh... Oh, no. Imagine being stuck in such a beautiful place where it's yeah. so cheap to live consistently. That would I have been terrible. I don't know. My, my wife is diabetic. So I don't know if it would have been the safest place to stay. Okay. But yeah. um, then Just again, if you've got lots of sugar cubes. Yeah, then you're, then you're <laughs> laughing, basically. That's how you, that's how <laughs> yes. you solve diabetes. It's fine. <laughs> you um, eat more sugar. That's the main problem. <laughs> Need you in the NHS, Lawrence. Dave, how's your job at the Premier League, Dave? <laughs> Great, mate. Real, real good. Going well. Just oh, checking. Yeah. Dave's inside the... Pre- Dave is, is, he's infiltrated. Dude. Dave... <laughs> oh my God, Dave next week is Richard Scudamore. Here we Do go. tweet us in if you've got a job at the Premier League yet. Because um, <laughs> Imagine Richard Scudamore tweets know. in. He's like, I used to have a job <laughs> at the Premier League. Statman Dave's replacement. Um, <laughs> look, we've got a lot to talk about. We've got Project Restart, the latest sort of chaos with that. We've got the Bundesliga returning. We've got the last dance as well that we want to talk about. Uh, first, though, I did want to go through some tweets, some comments, and one review that we got on iTunes, which I'm very grateful for, from Superfluous Mole, who said, <laughs> let's be honest, the last episode is just the podcast in a metaphor. Will it return? Will it not? Who really cares if football returns as long as the front three returns? Football really podcast great. made great by all five hosts. Great review. Thank you. Five stars. We're not all much. hosts, Appreciate but that's very nice. Yeah. But look, we love the review. We'd love if you left some more reviews. You know, we've got to try and fly back up those iTunes charts. Now we're back for some podcasts. Why not? Especially rate? when you Why see what review? else is at the top of it. Uh, I assume it's Joe, Joe Rogan still. I mean, the top yeah, I mean there's Joe Rogan. I mean, Joe Rogan this week got his deal on Spotify, didn't he? And obviously, he is signed with them for millions, so I cannot <sighs> listen to Joe Rogan on Spotify now either. Um, that could, that could be us one day, though. That could be us if people leave us reviews and comments, you know, and ratings. We might get Shave a million-pound deal with uh, yeah. with Spotify. But I thought it might be nice if people left us some reviews. You can talk about the podcast, of course, but why not tell us your spirit footballer? We'll read out our favorite comments on next week's episodes. So go and review, go and rate the podcast on iTunes. Much appreciated if you do. Um, you can also leave us tweets and comments at the front three on Twitter. Uh, Nipun Chopra, PhD, our good friend, uh, left us a very interesting tweet this week. He said, the return of the front three podcast was fantastic. It's a proper discussion about the question of returning to football. Well done, fellas. And as Logcast would say, once upon a time, that's where you say, welcome back. Welcome back. Yeah, there we go. Uh, for some reason, he's taking a real left tangent, but I, I, I appreciate all the same. Question for next week's pod, who would win the cage match between Lawrence and Statman Dave? Mm, it's um, tricky, isn't it? But it's obviously uh, me. Is it tricky? Um, what do you reckon, Dave? We've got no, some Bob in- interesting comments. Mansour Manawa, another good friend of ours, says, Dave seems like a scrappy fighter, so my money is on him. Sorry, Lawrence. You're just a little too bougie. For a cage match. Yeah. Oh, I'm a you, you try and talk me down, Lawrence, I think, and I'd be crazy. You know, my shirt would talk, be off. I try and talk you down. <laughs> I try, you think I'd get in the cage and go, Dave, let's talk about <laughs> this. Dave, let's talk about this. Do yeah. we really need to do this? Oh, <laughs> just go, I've got a Premier League job to keep here. <laughs> Owen Myers on Twitter said, Loss, hands down, would use his agility and be quicker than Dave, no doubt. So, uh, He's just I mean, taking he our verbal jousts in the way that I am. Um, twice <laughs> the man Dave will ever testing them physically. <laughs> I was actually uh, listening to a, a podcast with The Undertaker this morning. And uh, oh, I was yeah? I was kind of thinking, I don't think I'd have that, but I would love to see Dave in some dark eyeshadow <laughs> with his hair slicked back, trying to tombstone pile driver me into the top <laughs> of the cage. 
K20 said, Statman Dave has the power of mathematics behind him. His swanton bomb from the top of the cage would be accurate. So, yeah, I, I think man. that would end it. What? It'd be something, what? me doing something stupid and like ending myself. I think that's how it would finish. Yeah. <laughs> you leap off the top of the cage and miss completely. Yeah, pile for a commentary. Dislocate table. my knee or something. Yeah, I reckon that's how it ends. And <laughs> then... shout, according to my calculations, as he goes <laughs> through the air and then just bang. Swanton <laughs> Bomb Boltwood, in case you don't know, is where was, you, exactly. it was done, done by the Hardy Boys. Uh, Jeff Hardy, uh, Lawrence. Jeff Hardy, but obviously mm. they were a tag team, Dave, and Matt was also in there. And uh, he basically get on the top turnbuckle and then he'd dive off and sort of do this like twisty thing in the air with his fingers out and his tongue out. And then he'd hit them. But it, it, it didn't look like it would hurt all that much, but it was definitely, <laughs> it was definitely bad, you know? You know, like a delayed front flip. Was it a front yeah. flip? Yeah, it's like a delayed front flip. So you like hold, he's holding in, looking like down for a lot longer and then he's rolling over. That makes Pretty sense. Amazing. Forward. And it, one of them had a girlfriend once called Lita, who used oh, to do this. I forgot about top, that. You see, you see. And basically, she used to do like a real acrobatic thing off the top uh, of the ropes. And that was mm. also pretty impressive. I'll, I'll give I'm, the WWE their dues. I'm showing my age now, but my favorite wrestler was the Ultimate Warrior. This is like early WWE. Jesus, Boltwood. When it was still yeah, called. Bloody yeah. Hell, yeah. 40. No, <laughs> getting there. 45, uh, you mean, Lawrence? Him, yeah. him. Him and Hulk Hogan were my favourite wrestlers, and I remember. Is Hulk Hogan still one of your favourite wrestlers? He's still, I think he's still going. He's, he, he, yeah. he's never got away. But I his politics call... haven't changed either. <laughs> yeah, my parents say that when I was little, uh, we got a cat, and I wanted to call it the Ultimate Warrior. Uh, they said no, which I was wow. surprised what? at. What? What? So that's a test. Of... <laughs> they called the cat Ric Flair in the end. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Rick. Yeah, it's a better name. It's, it's a better name. Um, look, I want to talk about Project Restart, guys, uh, staff, because obviously it's, it's what we were we were discussing last week. Lots of differing opinions, but it's moved on. It's all it's all going smoothly now. Um, right. The news broke yesterday that there were six positive tests for coronavirus across three Premier League clubs on Sunday as Monday, uh, as they're gearing up to to potentially resume in June. Uh, the players or staff who tested positive now has to self-isolate for seven days. And the Burnley assistant manager, Ian Wone, was among those who had tested positive. Now, I saw this and was, uh, I was quite shocked. I thought, you know, this is this is a worrying sign. Uh, six positive tests already. The Premier League and the clubs are going to have to be incredibly wary now. They're going to have to be incredibly strict to contain any potential contamination or spreading of the virus. But from all the reporting I saw, you know, this is this is a massive boost for the Premier League. Only six pro- positive tests from 748 players and staffs from the 19 clubs tested. This is great news. Shows that the, the league restarting is viable. Lawrence, uh, do you agree with that? Um, I mean, it, it, it is viable in the sense that if we just keep going um, down the route of, right, well, if someone tests positive, then you know, we'll just keep going. And if it's a low enough number uh, or what we consider a low enough number at each club, then fine. But apparently there have also been issues at Watford because Watford had three of the positive tests within the playing staff. And so a lot of the players alongside Troy Deeney, obviously has brought up something this week, um, have also said, well, is it really safe for us to train? We don't know if we've been exposed in some way, whether we were exposed before and it wasn't picked up. Is it actually safe for us to train? Uh, you know, the people who are in contact doing the testing, there's all sorts of things. And uh, I guess we'll unpack that on the podcast, but there's many layers to it when someone tests positive. I guess they will have thought of a test process to stop, you know, so maybe the players will have contracted it overnight or the time they've been away from uh, the ground. And you'd hope that they wouldn't have been around other people. And my thing is, I don't know whether, 
obviously if if was this the first day that they were back or was it the second or the third day? I don't know how long what would have been I, training. I think they were pre-tests. I think they were done before they're going back to training. I think they were done on Monday. Well, Sunday and Monday. The, su- Sunday and Monday. So this the was before were anyone even returned. Yeah. Yes. Tuesday the clubs right, went okay. back to training. Right. Okay. Because there are players obviously then within Watford that have since said that they wouldn't want to train at the risk. And I'm sort of like, well, who would have come into contact with those players? I don't know. Maybe they're friends and uh, Maybe we don't know something. Maybe someone's broken the quarantine to go and see a friend or something. But uh, to me, uh, yeah, it does It does seem safe. The other side is obviously what Troy Deeney is saying, which I think is also a fair argument and one that, you know, is someone who raises doubts shouldn't be shouted down at this time unless the doubts are, of course, that it's all 5G. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Good point. Um, you, you have to sympathize with Troy Deeney, though, as, um, as Lawrence said there. His exact quote, he was on uh, Eddie Hearn and Tony Bellew's podcast. That's where this quote comes from, Bernie. Uh, he said it only takes one person. Eddie Hearn started a podcast. Hmm, yeah. Where do you get that yeah. idea? Hmm? Yeah. Talk the talk. YouTube show, uh, according to the BBC. Yeah. Uh, Troy said it only <laughs> takes one person to get infected within the group. And I don't want to be bringing that home. My son is only five months old. He had breathing difficulties. So I don't want to come home and put him in more danger uh so it's understandable why why Troy Deeney feels he doesn't want to go to training Dave um you can't disagree with that no you can't again I think it's you have to take these things into consideration I think that this is the overall problem that we think it, it's simple testing done everyone's okay let's go back to training but if you've got a son that might be vulnerable or a daughter that might be vulnerable and one of your teammates breaks lockdown like we've seen Premier League players already do you know there's a handful already that have already been caught doing it with doing different things that are opening themselves up massively to COVID-19. So you understand, but as well, you know, you'd, you'd hope that your teammates would have the respect that they know that Troy Deeney's um, son is vulnerable to this. So if Troy gets it, it's very bad. So it's kind of one of those things that it is collectively as, as a team, they need to come together and, you know, set certain standards and rules. And obviously with Watford having three cases, you know, it's, it's a little bit like, are they taking this seriously? Do they need to take more precautions? But it kind of goes down to that fact of like, this is still a big, big problem. Just looking at the, the rates of the testing that you mentioned before, the Bundesliga had 0.5% of the people that they tested, the Bundesliga clubs and the Bundesliga 2 clubs, all the staff and everyone involved there. Um, yeah. When there was 10 cases there out of 1,724. And then you mentioned just right. then the, 10 ca- the six cases in the Premier League. So the Premier League's rate is higher than the Bundesliga's rate. Again, mm. we expect that England versus Germany in this environment. Germany absolutely cleans them up, hands down. No, we, but we've got to win every battle against Germany, Dave. You know <laughs> we that have, as a country. That, you know, it's still we there. And I, I very much support Germany uh, in this environment, Lawrence. Um, we'll be happy to know. <laughs> you turncoat, Dave. Winston Churchill will be turning in his grave. <laughs> Winston Churchill, what a terrorist. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> My God. <laughs> the, the, the hot takes are coming out. Like the hot that. takes are coming thick the and fast. Next he'll, be insulting, next he'll be insulting the saint that is Boris Johnson. Uh, Unbelievable. Uh, but but go, going back to it, it's kind of, it is interesting. The Premier League clubs are taking this very seriously, but their responsibility now is on the players and the playing staff and the people around these clubs to, you know, to deal with this in a, in a, in a manner that everyone needs to do. Social distancing, staying at home, they, they they more than everyone else needs to be adhering to these rules. So it kind of goes down to if they can't do it, then we've got absolutely no chance in the United Kingdom of us, you know, successfully coming out of lockdown without having a second peak. I think that's where it comes to. This is at a level where they have infinite amount of money in comparison to the, the standard person, infinite amount of access to testing, X, Y, and Z. You know, they get their food delivered, they get all their medical stuff delivered. It's kind of one of these things where if they can't do it, then we're kind of done. So... It is, there does seem to be some kind of legitimate and valid 
points by by players and managers against the process. Obviously, as Dave mentioned there, Watford have had three players tested positive. We've spoken about Tridini. Uh, Nigel Pearson was also outspoken. And Danny Rose again. Um, his comments on another uh, YouTube podcast has cropped up during uh, during lockdown. It was Robert Snodgrass's uh, podcast, Lockdown Tactics. The, the one that the, oh, I want all these I, I would have called it. I would have called it Podgrass. Oh, <laughs> he's, he's had an absolute mare, hasn't he? He's had an absolute yeah. mare. Lawrence, get but, on the phone to him, mate. You need to rebrand that. that Robert. <laughs> yeah, listen, just a random call from, uh, from an unknown number. <laughs> Hello, Robert. Call, call, it, Podgrass. call it Podgrass. <laughs> Hello? Call it Podgrass or else. Bye. <laughs> so on the Podgrass, uh, Danny Rose yeah. said, people are suggesting we should go back to football like we're guinea pigs or lab rats. I could be potentially risking my health for people's entertainment and that's not something I want to be involved in, if I'm honest. So as we were sort of saying last week, we could have this potential scenario where players are abstaining, players are refusing to go back to training and as we're saying, they're, they're perfectly, but, they're perfectly in their in their rights to do that. I get what you're saying, Botwood, and I I understand anyone being worried. And I don't think you should ever diminish people's worry, but I also think what you should do is you should supplement that with what we know about the virus, which is the danger to people under a certain age. Obviously, is not something that um, seems to affect. It doesn't seem that what I'm saying is, Dave. The, the statistically, it doesn't seem to affect a certain uh number of people Age. under say 65 so th- it is particularly dangerous now i think the thing that i uh wider than that i'm less thinking about danny rose i am thinking more about the child of troy Dini, the uh grandmother that might live with a south american player who maybe has all his family mm-hmm. in one area or even just someone who lives in you know an english player who has always lived in that area and has all his family around him and goes and visits those people and considers that to be something which makes them calm enough to be able to play football because family is incredibly important to some people. Or maybe they've got someone who's close to them who's vulnerable and they're not family. There's all these different things where it's like, I get it. Uh, I guess with Troy Dini, I understand it. And I quite, I, I, I had a bit more maybe empathy for Troy, A, because I've met him once or twice before and he's always been a very nice guy, but also because he, he more or less made it not really about money. He was like, I've been broke before. It's not that I, it's not that I need the money. It's more that the, the moral side of it. And that, I guess, it's then what we're really relying on is that everyone understands how the virus affects people, how the virus will spread, whether these people will be safe or not, uh, whether, whether he fully, and, and I'm not questioning whether Danny Rose actually knows what's going on, but I'm saying whether Danny Rose fully knows why and how people will be tested and how that probably will protect him to within, you know, 99.9% of whether he can get it or not. Yeah. It's, it, that's, that is, that's the real part for me. Mm. But if he, if he's not understanding that, is that potentially a failing on the Premier League's part or the club's part where he doesn't feel safe? Like uh, uh, the... Yes. And, and that, yeah. And that's what I think is important about what is when you watch the video, I think the Premier League has been, we said it on the last podcast, incredibly faceless, incredibly uh, quiet in this time, or if they have been saying things, it's not been getting through to the general public beyond the journalists. This, Yeah. Because, ahead of the Bundesliga starting, which we'll come on to, I really was impressed by their communications, both on social media and otherwise, where they explained the protocol. In multiple languages. Yeah, and it was very clear. It was very concise. Um, and it was in it was relayed in a way that was reassuring. I understood all the different constraints and all the different limits they were putting in place in order to ensure the safety of players uh, and the staff alike. And that's going to be the tricky part now because the Premier League have got to create their own protocols. They've got to really put together a comprehensive plan, explain it apparently to the players and clubs uh, in, in a more detailed manner, but also the public. Uh, and I feel like once they get to that stage, Dave, 
you know, people like myself who, you know, I said last week on the podcast, I, I, I don't feel at the moment it's justifiable to bring the Premier League back, even despite, you know, six positive tests out of 700 odd. It doesn't feel justifiable to me. But if that communication came where they explained in depth why it's safe, how they're, they're, they're putting the health and safety of the players and the staff paramount, I, I will start to understand and accept how and why it's coming back. Yeah, I think that's that's the big thing that we were chatting about last week. It's the communication. That's it. It's the communication is so, so important in this environment because it's been so bad from our own government level that the Premier League needs to stand up and needs to be the body that that starts to actually communicate properly. And I think the Bundesliga have done it supremely well, as you mentioned, the languages and how they've, they've brought the league back into a position where they can do it. But you've got to remember that we're in a different environment as well in terms of COVID-19. Germany are in an environment where their curve is, is on the massive down, whereas we're completely flatlined. We're flatlining across, just rolling with X amount of cases per day that is nowhere near the standard of where Germany is in terms oh, of yeah. where they're at. And that, that's, the, yeah. that's the other issue, that Germany are in a better environment health-wise than we were to start the Bundesliga than we will probably be when we've got to start the Premier League because we just haven't do dealt you, with this properly. Do you think it's also, I mean, that that's partly what the the contrast of what Danny Rose says and what Troy Deeney says. I don't think, I mean, the, the quotes that I read from Troy Deeney were very much about himself and very much about, uh, listen, I don't feel comfortable with this because I have something that directly affects me. Whereas Danny Rose was arguing more on a moral basis, which I think is a, a harder argument to make because there are two different sides to this where a lot of people are saying, well, also normal people are having to go back to work here and they get paid a lot less. You know, mm. that we don't, we don't, um, we don't necessarily, um, say, well, uh, you know, am I, if you're in a supermarket, you don't know, am I here just so that you guys can eat? Well, it's like, well, yes. And Danny Rose is kind of saying, am I just here for your, for your entertainment to be thrown out? Well, you are being paid to, to do that. Uh, Danny and I'm not I'm not saying you're being paid to put your health on the line but the more that the footballers say things that maybe look out of stride with what the public are going through it, the less that people will have empathy I think for those people whereas with what Troy Deeney said he said something which was incredibly personal incredibly easy to empathize with um and and I, at the same time I also think if you maybe maybe you disagree with what we hear but I think it, the Premier League is uh, entertainment but there is an element where I'm trying to tie two things together. Basically, it's entertainment, but a lot of people consider it to be a vital. On the contrast to that, there is such mistrust of everyone at the top of the Premier League compared to the Bundesliga. And there is such mistrust of our government compared to Germany. Mm. I think that there is a bit of a cultural difference here where we just have a general mistrust of anything that happens right now because of everything that's happened politically, be that Brexit, be that, you know, uh, financially, be that the government essentially lying to us about so many things and then having a magic money tree when they need it. There's so many aspects that make us distrust people. I, I agree with what you're saying. And it's a great point because I do have sympathy for Danny Rose. And I think, as you say, there is that mistrust of the government. We saw Matt Hancock, the health secretary, a month or so ago you know, bash footballers. It was yeah. it was low-hanging fruit for him to try and deflect away from the prick. government to say, footballers should be doing their part. They should be doing their part. And then a couple of weeks later, Dominic Raab comes out and says, we need football back. He's going to lift the spirits of the nation. So I understand the mistrust and the, the ill feeling perhaps on Danny Rose's part. He's thinking, well, hang on, the government just wants it to come back as a distraction. They want it to come back as as entertainment. Is that worth the hassle? Is, is I believe, what he are said. You, but he, are you essentially he's, making that point, though? I... I <laughs> 
I can see where Danny Rose is coming from, is what I'm saying. At the end of the day, is football life or death? No. Are these players potentially risking their health? Yes. But at the same time, as you said, and as Dave pointed out, you know, these players have unlimited access to tests. Mm -hmm. The environment that they're working in is likely to be safer than any other environment that other people, uh, the, the, the public are putting themselves in with regard to their own professions. So it is a tricky one and it just shows how complicated it is because now, as I say, the Premier League have got to put together these guidelines. The government has to approve them. There's going to be a vote next Tuesday between all 20 clubs uh, to, to push that through. And then if that passes, they've still got to get through the hurdle of the matches being safe behind closed doors. They've got to resolve that issue and those discussions with the police about the use of home venues. Are there going to be eight to 10 neutral venues where all the games are staged? So what they're saying now is it looks likely that an end of June date is more likely, Dave, with possibly Friday the 26th uh, as, as the scheduled weekend uh, to kick things off, which does give plenty of time to get all these protocols and guidelines in place. And you'd hope, as we're saying, the Premier League will start communicating in a more effective manner to explain to the players, the clubs and the public why this is viable. It's just like pushing it further and further back because it looks like they don't have a bloody clue of what they're doing. And that's the kind of thing that this industry could step forward and go, we have done tests and we have successfully relaunched our business. You guys can do this. It's almost like the, you know, the, we're basically seeing around the world right now that big business is driving government. We're seeing it with Tesla in the US. We're seeing it with other companies in the US that are basically like, we're going back to work. Elon Musk, you know, going back to work. Otherwise, we're going to move the factory. But the, the benefit of what them going back to work is if they can build a system where people can go work, go to work and work healthy, you know, in a healthy environment, then there is positives there economically. But it goes back to like, is it worth the money? But it seems like by them stagnating, like, so the, the first thing, that they were supposed to be back on the 6th, supposed to be back on the 12th, supposed to be back on the 18th, and now it's the 26th. Like, where's the plan? Like, there's no plan. Like, that's the, the danger of that is, right? So we are on the 20th of May. So it's a month and six days for them to sort their shit out. That for a big, big company, that's going to be difficult. For them to be agile and for them to react how they should be reacting in this environment, that's going to be like sloppy as shit. You know, if they've not even decided where the venues are, holy shit, it goes back to that point. Make a fucking decision. Like, make a decision. Yes, we're going to do it at home grounds. Right, let's speak to the police. Let's provide the police with testing. Let's provide the NHS staff in the local area with testing because we are using all these tests. Back to that same point I meant before. If you don't make a decision, you can't make progress. Whether it's a bad decision or it's a, you know, it's a good decision, make a decision because then you can build on that and then you can build a plan. And that is, it feels like the, there is no plan and it's getting delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. Yeah, whether it's based on government, you know, making decisions. But at the same time, you could caveat that where it would be like, right, okay, so if the government says we can do this at this point, Let's do this. If not, let's go down this other line. Like we all, we've all worked in businesses where that we've had to make decisions like that, and we've had to make plans like that because that's how the world works. You know, it's not all, you know, nice and, and dandy that things work in a in a straight line. You go onto these parallels, you go onto these, you know, zigzags in the road and that. And I think the Premier League aren't dealing with this well. <laughs> Whether it does come back on the twenty sixth, then the issue we have now, right? So the the further the further that this gets delayed, right? The further that we have to sort this out, along with the fact the championship needs to start as well for them to sort their relegation promotion out because they aren't going to vote for a, a points per game 100%. And how do you deal with the playoffs anyway? So we're getting further and further, you know, closer to like September, October, right? I got a message from Manchester United yesterday about my season ticket renewing. So it was, I think it was £550, I think, renewing it. I think it was about 800 quid before. I'm not exactly sure of the numbers. Um, so... 
they're basically planning. They worked out it's like 13 games, home games that you'd be able to watch. So that's them making a plan already. But it doesn't feel like the Premier League have actually decided what they're doing. Because if, you know, the, the thought of that 13 games is 2021, when everyone should be allowed to go back to football grounds, which is a long bloody time to not watch football. I also think that's crazy, a little, I, let's be honest, like I, I also right think now. that's a little bit optimistic um, in terms of, in, well, yeah, also, also not, in, um, not, you know, whilst it, that is perfectly fine. I, you know, I think there are some people and I think we should make the point that, you know, there was a great map the other day where Texas was laid over Europe. And uh, it was basically shown that, you know, you can see the scale of the United States compared to Germany, compared to all these things. Really, we should be treating yeah. the UK the way they treat one state in America. And this would be one state that's particularly been badly affected rather than one state like a Montana or something like yeah. that that hasn't been so affected. And so shouldn't be it shouldn't be in the same lockdown as as another, you know, a New York or something yeah. like that. Um, just to add to Dave's point on top of that. It's absolutely fine saying, right, we can go to a football match. Dave can go to a football match if Dave's living in the UK. But we also know that there's so many people who go to football matches as tourists, as travelers, as all these kind of things. As we, um, mm. If we don't completely yeah. close the borders, we're not going to be able to monitor who's buying a ticket. And Manchester United or any big club are going to struggle. Well, you're basically going to go, right, you need your passport to be able to get into the ground. What are you yeah. going to do? Like, And then even then it's going to mm. be like, right, well, are there going to be people who are going to visit the ground in that time? Are there going to be people outside on match day who have come from another country? Like, we don't, it, it, we're trying to get the Premier League started when we don't even have a plan in terms of society in general. I think that's the other side here. And then not only that, but I mean, so what, what you're saying, Lawrence, is you agree with Miss Patel and you want to close what I'm the saying, uh, I mean, I've never agreed less with Pretty Patel. Um, <laughs> but I, I do think that there needs to be a plan in place to monitor movement between the borders, at least, to, or, or yeah, to be knowledgeable. 100%. What we, we, how long did it take us to close them in the first place? They were still fucking open. Like, yeah, like and I think that's ago. also a worry for the players, where it's like, I mean, there are some ridiculous things that go on where it's like, you know, Teams are social distancing in the dressing room in Germany, but then on corners, well, we're not social distancing. It's like, let's look at how much of this is performative, mm. I guess, is what I'm asking Boltwood, and how much of this is actually actually practical. And I think a lot of what's going on in the UK at the moment is quite performative, and people are just sort of going, yeah, we need to, you know, like Nico was saying last week, the six feet is arbitrary. Mm. We need to look at the actual practical yeah. rules around this and practically mm. look at how this is going to work, not just go, these are the rules, apply them across absolutely everything. And then that also goes and speaks to a bigger issue within the Premier League of when does it not become competitive? When is it uncompetitive in the Premier League then? For instance, you know, there, there was a point made by someone else. It's like, well, teams get injuries all the time. Yeah, but those teams can uh, legislate against a lot of those injuries. And, it, you know, it would be very unusual for a team to get a lot of people ill at one time it feels a little bit unfair now on Watford to say, right, you're going to have a week without three players here. We don't know if they're key players or not. You're going to have a week without these players. They can't train. Is that a competitive advantage for someone else? Is that on Watford? Is that on the Premier League? Who's that on? I think that's on Watford because the like it's on Watford in an environment where these like these people have been tested positive for COVID. So they, there's there's a there's a you know there's a transfer of COVID. That you don't get COVID if I'm sat in this room by myself. So there's a method of transfer of COVID. Like however it gets in, whether it's a pizza delivery dude, whether it's you've gone Someone's out to go and get a coffee dance. and you've touched a cup <laughs> and then you've you've 
and you put your you put your hand in your mouth or whatever. That there, there is <laughs> responsibility just, on the players, oh, and I think hand that, in mouth. <laughs> I always lick my hands. I'm trying to get COVID ASAP. So Good point. Yeah, enough. although you're on the immunity, Dave, yeah. licking all the elbows. you might have to get it a few times, Dave, because it yeah. seems that just getting it once isn't enough yeah. for some people. Well, I think I might have had COVID, you know, Lawrence. Oh, Dave, you are David one. Ike incarnate. So, so it, it, my girlfriend went right. back to America. She's her family were were living in Washington D.C. at Christmas, right? So she flew from England to Iceland, then at Iceland to America. She got on a flight from this was like pre-Christmas. This was like the twenty-first of December. She got on a flight from Iceland to Washington, and she was sat next to a woman that was coughing horrendously. And showing signs of COVID nineteen, she gets back to America and she has like this horrendous, horrendous like period of like three or four days where she's like high fever, like literally like oh my god, this is the worst that ever happened. Horrendous cough, uh, loss of taste and smell, perhaps loss of taste. And smell. <laughs> like, I, she already had that I, to be able to live with Dave. That's what I don't think she was eating. Hey. <laughs> Low hanging fruit. But, but going back to it, like th- th- I, you I could have caught it. She came back to the UK and she was yeah. still she was still showing symptoms and I think I got a little bit ill for about I don't know like four so days. You might have very had the corona. Dave Dave's a superhuman. So that's so that's if we go back to the timeline, right? So this shit this shit's like mm. kicking off like November time. So my worry that's, is that my, I mean the, yeah, I, yeah I guess I've been around. But that's the, the, the government are saying, aren't they? That, that yeah, there's no way to know at the moment. That's why the track and trace is so important. We don't know who has had it, how many people have had it. But they're talking ah. shit, Boltwood. They are lying. They aren't doing this in a way where we're educating people. They are they are talking absolute shit. Nipun, our friend of the podcast, I speak to him about my medical stuff. He really is the, the smartest guy. man I've ever met. You can't, you, you, you can't, you cannot track R0. It's pretty <laughs> much impossible. Statistically, it's pretty much impossible to calculate. How the fuck are we as a, are we as a government, well, how is a, the people allowing the government to say, yeah, it's going up and down. Yeah, it's about 0.7 today. It's fucking bollocks. It's absolute horseshit. Like, it, it just, it, it's impossible. Like, what the... I mean, I, I did disbelieve a little bit when London had 24 cases in a day. Um, I just sort of thought, <laughs> did we lose the tests on this day? Or were they... <laughs> like... What? <laughs> they just it, working it just, day, the COVID just went, we'll just take a day off. Take a day off today, boys. And 24 <laughs> of COVID didn't get the memo. I, I guess to take it back to football, there is a bit of a, there is a moral side to this. Uh, uh, competitively. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
Well, let's talk about the Bundesliga because there's that practical yeah. side, as you mentioned, Lawrence, potentially how it could and should come back uh, in terms of the Premier League. Obviously, big event where everyone was tuning in. It was the first football, first major league coming back. Everyone picking a Bundesliga team to support. Uh, Peter the Polish. On, Who did you on... pick, Botwood? Well, Peter the Polish is on Twitter is asking which Bundesliga team are you supporting and why? Um, I, I, I would have chosen Dortmund if I'd have been sent uh, a signed shirt by uh, by a particular broadcaster. Oh, that was, uh, that was I, would you like that, that shirt, Botwood? Do you want that no, shirt? Is that, what you, is that what you're saying? Is it a genuine signed shirt? You, for people who haven't seen, what, what happened? It's a genuine signed shirt. Basically, BT really? Sport just messaged me and said, we need promotion. And I said, that's 10,000 pounds and they said what about a a a, a signed shirt and i went yeah okay and so now i just i have this signed shirt lawrence mckenna negotiation yeah don't get me wrong like i love the bundesliga but i also think someone's gonna love this shirt more than i will so oh i see i see you know, I'm trying to find a I new home. I will take it. it. I'll gladly take yeah. it. Yeah, I don't like, know if you will love it though. I mean, it's got no. a Jaden Sancho. It, what I'm kind of sitting on here is the fact that if oh. they do win the Bundesliga, then I will have a signed shirt from the entire squad, basically. Oh. So I'm I'm sort of sitting on that and waiting. And obviously, uh, Bayern Munich are doing their best to screw me over. So, well, maybe they could maybe win it. They're only four points behind Bayern Munich, uh, Dave, after that win over Schalke, four 0 in the end. Firstly, what did you make of it from the the novelty point of view of of watching? football but not as we know it Dave what was it like without the fans I found it weird not from a fan's perspective because I'm kind of used to that I watch quite a bit of youth football so it is what it is it's just weird seeing like first team players with no fans but it kind of you get used to it I think the the weird side the football was was poor I think that's something that we need to be like as soon as the Prem comes back people are going to be like what's the point it's absolutely Piers Morgan's going to be on Twitter like this is a waste of time but We've not had pre. It's basically had the summer off and no pre-season. So the technical quality, especially in the final third, in those little areas, little tight areas, first touches were off, second touches were off, passes were wayward with all the top sides. And you're looking at it thinking, you know, this is something that will happen in the Prem. But at the same time, it, it was football. It was enjoyable. I thought that the, the games were, the Dortmund game was, was, was good from a Dortmund perspective. Just so clinical on the break. Schalke, though, you can see Schalke basically are in pre-season right now. They were a They were bad. You're looking at the Leipzig game as well, where there were just poor touches in the final third. The amount of chances Leipzig missed as well from a finishing perspective. You said Paulson had a big one, Schick had a big one, Luckman had a big one. They were really good with their build-up at the base, but as soon as they got into the final third, they really struggled. And I really think that it's going to gear towards teams that play with wingers and, and target men or wingers with forwards that can score with the head. Because you look at the Leverkusen game on Monday, which was really oh, yes, interesting yeah. because Leverkusen were dominant. And one of the big things they did, they, they had uh, Moussa Diaby on the wing. And he literally just ran the wing and crossed it. And I think that's going to be a really good method of scoring goals with, with COVID coming back because the technical quality is not going to be there. The touch is not going to be there. So getting it wide, getting a quick guy to whip it into the box to someone that's either got good movement like Kaya Vitz or someone like a target man like Yusuf Paulson is going to be the go-to method, which means in the Premier League, Liverpool are going to be goddamn it's dominant. Interesting. And I think that's the interesting yeah, side Dave, of it. What do you mean we're going to be goddamn dominant? <laughs> We, are. we dominated pre and post COVID, Dave. That's the thing, mate. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Watford, mate, three 0 Yeah, I know, mate. But that was because we were so scared of getting COVID from their squad at the time. That we <laughs> yeah. we stayed away from half their players. That was a problem. I guess that was that was what resonated for me. Was I was watching it, I was just like, okay, it's football, and I'm you know I'm kind of glad to have it back. And obviously, I had to be a little bit hyped because you know I've been paid ten grand by these of course to, to hype the thing. But um, I. 
uh, I did sort of feel a little bit like, are these guys just playing this as like an arbitrary, right, football is happening now, rather than... Mm. It's like if you go to the opera and then they go, tonight, the... (laughs) uh, uh, You know, like Pavarotti couldn't make it. So does anyone want to sing his part? It's a bit like... um, Or he's got a sore throat, but he's still going to sing. It's like, well... Well, that's maybe is it really we've, football? We've, we've underestimated is, as Dave says, you know, there's these these potential fundamental differences to how the game is played because of fitness, because of the conditions. We all saw the celebrations that were socially distanced, but I also saw some stats that the players are making less less tackles, Ooh. there's fewer dribbles compared to pre-lockdown fixtures. So does that suggest they're reluctant to make contact? We're seeing some pretty fundamental differences is is, is pressing also is pressing going to work more days exactly. because you're not actually making a tackle you're actually just tracing shadows Ooh. No, I, th- I think the pressing wise i thought that wasn't too bad to be honest again the issue with pressing is it's a team collective thing so if you've not done that for two months it's not going to be the same vigor and you look at bayern before bayern pre-lockdown when they played chelsea bloody hell their pressing was incredible and they, they were they were so good and then you say you know, against Union, they were they were less good. They were sluggish. And again, it came from a the interesting time with that one. It came from you know a defender making a mistake and just booting Goretzka, and then they they win a penalty and score the penalty, and then they you know go on to it. But the, the the quality was poor. It looked a bit better when they had Gnabry and Kings of Coman out wide when they were again going down to that kind of direct playing playing down the wings style. So it is going to be interesting to see the pressing, to see the stats, to see the numbers. Uh, in there, one guy that kind of looked like he hadn't, hadn't missed a game. I think this is the interesting side, actually, going to another point is the players that didn't look like they'd miss football are the players that you can see have real quality. Kajovic, for sure, two goals. You can see that he is this talent because so, so simple for him. But, you know, the headers not rushed, chilled. Timo Werner, another one. Unbelievable creativity. Great five chances against um, whoever they played. I can't even remember it's that far away. But uh, Freiburg, Freiburg great five yeah. chances, really good little movements out wide. And you can think this guy's got quality. This guy's got quality. I think from a scouting perspective, you'll see the, t- the top players will, will, will be a level, even more of a level above. I think that's what we'll see is players that are intelligent footballers that have that real bit of quality are just going to absolutely shine through. So Jordan it's going to be interesting. It's going to be really interesting. Speaking. Uh, Jordan Henderson. Go on. No. I'm shine. I was going to say. I'm shine. Adam Lallana. Uh, yeah. Trent Alexander-Arnold is going to be on a madness. Speaking Seriously. of quality footballers, um, yeah. what did you make of this little storm in a teacup, Lawrence, with regards to Erling Haaland? Did you see the 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 tweets and, and comments about his, his interview techniques? He's just a kid. Like, Also, let's be honest, this is exactly what the network wants. They want something that's going to be shared with their advertisers all over it. They want... Um, they want a bit of news. We want some personality in the people that we see playing football. And I'm perfectly fine with the young guy not saying everything exactly as we want him to. Why Why pressure someone to just... Like, what would you rather? He just did a boring interview that everyone just went, I think yeah, he, cool. I think he's having a laugh. Yeah. I think he's winding people up. Enjoy he's, it. He's generally, he's just doing it deadpan. He's having a, he's having a joke. He, he, I think he goes into interviews and he's like, right, I'm going to see how much I can wind him up now. But that was, yeah, the, the interesting thing was, yeah, that, was that was kind of like a small clip, it seemed, of the interview that had been been edited yeah. where he sort of, he says eight words to, to bat away four questions, mm. whereas a full interview, he is a bit more expressive and expansive. So, which is Enjoy it. It's, yeah. It, it's the but fact maybe that people, what do you want to do? You want to follow the rules like all the time. You've got to be like, yeah, give us an answer. Give us this, give us that. It's like, 
mate, he's just gotten off from playing a full game of football for the first time in however long. And you're like, yeah, let's do a full interview now. It's like, who the, who's the bloody last person he even spoke to? He probably just sits at home and his mum goes, <laughs> do, you want some, do you want some toast? And he's like, yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, that's it. I wasn't, I wasn't particularly interesting or engaging to talk to when I was nineteen. But um, is this just? Oh, you were. <laughs> Come on, Boltwood. You were a lovely nineteen-year-old. I mean, I was a goldsmith. So I was, I was an arty type. You know. You know yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I think but... what this says to me is yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, this cappuccino it's... reminds me of home. Well, you don't drink cappuccinos, mate. If you're an arty type of goldsmith, nah, you, you get yeah, kicked you're, out. You're... You get kicked out <laughs> yeah. immediately. Um, it has to be fair trade coffee. Oh, my as well, cold mate. brew. <laughs> yeah, cold brew or flat whites. That's it. But uh, cold brew. Or, yeah, I remember the trying. My my main transition to goldsmiths was that I went from a latte to a flat white, oh, and I was like, "How do you game. even drink this?" <laughs> yeah. In one, I believe you just down it. You burn your throat a little bit, but it's, oh, it's it gets rid of the COVID. That's what we used to say back then. <laughs> yeah, we were we were way ahead of our time. It goes to us ten years ago. Um, is this all just a bit of a compliment, Dave, for for Haaland? You know, all the attention on him. He's nineteen years old. One of the best strikers in the world. You know, all the focus, all the attention is is on him. That could be a, a charitable way of, look, of looking at this situation. Yeah, I think going back to that generational point, he is definitely generational. I think this, his finish was unbelievable. His assist for Rafael Guerrero was unbelievable. Like. You can see the quality there. And if, if he wants to answer with one word, then he can bloody answer with one word because he's going to give us so much entertainment. He already has given us loads of entertainment over his short career. It, it, it's going to be an absolute phenom. It's exciting to see how good he can be because he's he's got the raw materials to be the best ever Ooh. and as a centre forward. And that ever. is the exciting side ever. You think Above Lewandowski, above, uh, above oh. that level. I was just... look, 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 watching Lewandowski at his age, Lewandowski still had a lot of work to do. Watching Lewandowski at maybe his peak at Dortmund, that yeah, there's you know he's, he was at a better position than Haaland is now. But Haaland is at this age right now. What are you saying? Yeah, he's scoring a shitload of goals. He's so quick. Obviously, there's, there's parts of his game. He needs to work on his touch. He needs to work on his hold up play. His passing is wayward from time to time. Um, sometimes he makes bad decisions when he's got the ball at his feet where he should pass when he's looking to shoot. But like. The finish, how he opened himself up, how relaxed he was in that environment, how relaxed he is with goal scoring, how the work he does off the ball, like it, it's it is scary. It is definitely scary. But, but, whoever picks him up, whether it's Liverpool, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Manchester United, Red, Juventus, whoever, Tom. basically is getting them number nine sorted for the do, next ten years you, I, or next twenty years. I was also really impressed with Brandt alongside him. I thought Brandt was really good in that. Yeah, yeah. I, you mentioned Lewandowski there, uh, Dave. I just want to mention him because uh, Bayern won two uh, 0 against Union Berlin. Robert Lewandowski scored a penalty, which means he's now scored at least 40 goals across all competitions in five straight seasons in one of Europe's major leagues. The only other players to do so are Lionel Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, gee, the thing with Lewandowski is I think you sort of touched on it there. You know, he sort of peaked at Dortmund. And I think generally he is widely regarded as one of the best strikers of his generation. Do you think he's, he's somewhat underrated or do you think his legacy is almost kind of... He maybe didn't build on that peak at Dortmund when he went to Bayern. I think he's just come on to his second peak. I think he's, I think, <laughs> much like COVID. Right now, it, it, I think probably, I'd say the last 12 months, he's been the best number nine in world football. Wow. I think he's back at his peak. And I think there's things where, like decision points in his career that he, that he made that were just wrong. I think he shouldn't have gone to Dort Bayern when he did. Yeah. I think Borussia Dortmund was so perfect for him. The style, how they played to him, they were direct to him. He brought players into play. He was the heartbeat of that team. He was the focal point of that team as a number nine. You know, he could play any role that you wanted to play. Target man, false nine, could drop off the line, could turn, could get his head up, could run in behind, could do everything. And then playing under Pep Guardiola killed him. 
Pep Guardiola is, is a really interesting coach because you really sink or swim as a player. And I felt like that, you know, the, the, the Munich side he had, like he wasted talent. He wasted time there. You're thinking Muller, not the same play. You're thinking Thiago didn't get to the heights that he was previously. And it is interesting to look at a really good coach and, and look around and think, actually, that doesn't quite work. Leroy Sane, prime example of that. Why the hell has that guy not played on the right wing? He can finish and he's super quick and he's left-footed. Yet Guardiola's fixated on playing him on the left. And I feel like Lewandowski now under Hansi Flick is basically playing the same role he played for Borussia Dortmund. Again, he's playing in a 4-2-3-1. They press like hell. They are very, very quick in the transition. He's supported by really creative wide players. He's got Thomas Muller as a second striker behind him like he had with Marco Royce. That everything's right. The environment is completely correct for him to excel as a footballer. And we're seeing it again. Mm. And it is interesting that you see, like Lionel Messi is another example, right? Lionel Messi is unbelievable. I've, been watch, I've watched the 2007-2008 um, Man United season for a video on my YouTube channel. Just going back and revisiting, watching that side. Unbelievable side. Would have hammered this Liverpool team, Lawrence. I'm sorry to tell you, but they would have battered them. Sure you would. Um, sure but you would, the interesting Dave. side. So in the semi-final, Lionel Messi played for Barcelona. And you could see his quality was unbelievable. Mm. Like the, the, his ability to beat a man. Like in the first like two minutes of the game, he dribbles, skulls, and he beats Wes Brown. Oh no, beats Wes Brown, and then skulls takes him out. Unbelievable. But you could actually see that side didn't pass him the football. It was really, really weird. It was almost like they felt they, that this guy coming to the team, ah, you know, he's not good enough. He's not going to get there. And every time he got the ball, he did something. But Lionel Messi as well has been mismanaged. Whether it's in terms of managing his personnel, managing himself as a person and, and making him not bigger than the team because it feels now that he's bigger than Barcelona. He's had the wrong manager. He should have won more, pre- more titles. Like, this guy is the best sure. player we've ever had. More Premier Leagues, more La Ligas, more Champions Leagues. He should have won more. And it feels like the managers around him have not seen him at the peak. Whereas Ronaldo's had good managers around that. And I think that's the really interesting side when we come to these really big players is they actually need an environment to thrive. Mm. And they need certain structures and tactics and how they play football to succeed. And it feels like, in a way, I know looking back, it feels like we've wasted Lionel Messi a little bit. Oh, I always think that. I, and I, I feel the same with really? Lewandowski going to Bayern. I feel the same. I mean, I, it's not that I feel... Mario Goetze. Yeah, there are so many players where when they are at a certain club, they just get wasted. And there are certain clubs where you know the combo of those two things. Dave, just, just to caveat that, you know, you said that obviously the Manchester United team would beat this Liverpool team <laughs> yeah obviously just just to be clear about this now Dave now yes y- did Manchester United win against that Barcelona team United yeah yeah what was they the beat them 1-0 yeah 1-0 at home one nil. they beat them 0-0 exactly, away exactly Dave um, uh, but how, how, how much did Liverpool <laughs> how much how much did beat them nil, nil. how much did Liverpool beat Barcelona by just just a couple of seasons but, but ago Lawrence, Lawrence, how much, Lawrence 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 yeah, Lawrence 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 YouTube channel we consistently highlighted how to beat that Barcelona team and there was a weakness there cross from fullback you're going to score goals yep United could have done it if they watched the videos. They didn't watch the videos. Liverpool watched the videos. Jurgen Klopp was on the Statman Dave YouTube channel. We saw, right? This is how we do it. And you simply won the game. It's a, it's a very good point. It's a, a very good point. Our, this team was four times better than that <laughs> Manchester United team. And that's just a that's fact. That's saying. science. Lawrence, yeah, sorry, that's sorry, just science, Dave. And they it... won the Premier League and Champions League in the same season. No. United what? were the last team oh, to do Dave, that in 2008. Oh, Dave, has your team ever reached 97 points? Oh, thank you. It's two trophies. Competitive. Chelsea Chelsea were a hell of a lot better than uh, Liverpool were, than City were in this league, Lawrence. Let me, yeah. Very good Chelsea. Tevez was fantastic, mate. Let me bring it back to, to finish on, on German football and Bayern. Uh, just to get away from this very fiery debate. The hot takes are, are still... 4-0, mate. You'll never beat us. Um, 
<laughs> I wanted to touch on. Uh, that was last year, Lawrence. Go. I wanted to touch on last week. Obviously, we spoke a lot about how this situation uh, could change football for the worse. And I'm obviously coming from a very jaded perspective, as you can all tell. Um, but one thing I thought was interesting coming out of Germany is this news that German football is pushing potentially to introduce a salary cap and a clamp down specifically on agent fees after the pandemic, um, according to a five-point plan, five plan put forward by the head of German Football Association, Fritz Keller. Uh, he said, we must bring professional football close to the people again. We have to think about salary cap. Commissions for agents and transfer fees are increasingly irritating society and alienating it from our beloved sport. Football as a whole is called upon to finally provide satisfactory answers to these problems. So what do you make of that, Lawrence? It's the German Football Association and Bayern Munich who specifically are pushing for this. But it's an interesting fact that I didn't consider an interesting positive that could actually come out of this entire situation, reigning in salaries, reigning in agent fees. Uh, yeah, I, I think that that's uh, multifaceted. I mean, it's definitely a great idea in the sense that it already happens in another in a number of top leagues uh, globally in other sports. So we're seeing NFL, we're seeing NBA, we're seeing all. And before it was a different s- structure and system, and now it seems a little bit more balanced. I guess the worry is that um, it may impact. It, it works. It works in a certain way in other sports, and they've sort of uh, got it right the first time, or got it right over uh, now. In the end, it, what I'm saying is, in Germany, they'd need to get it right first time. They didn't do that in the NBA. They didn't necessarily do that in NFL, and they've had to craft it. So maybe the first iteration, in a similar way to financial fair play, won't be um, as good. Uh, but it, it, over time, it can be something we can change. I guess the worry is that if you've got a player who really wants the money, say there's someone who's really desperate for the cash then they might not end up playing in your league if you do have a salary cap. And if a salary cap happens in Germany or it happens in another league, uh, there will be pressure for that to happen all over Europe just to make the competition equal. Mm. And then, I mean, maybe it will benefit other leagues globally uh, who go, well, we could pay just as much as a, you know, whatever team. Or And the worry is that, you know, Saudi Arabia or someone make a league and go, we will not have any salary caps. <laughs> you can come over here, you can play all you want for all the money you want. And, you know, it'll be a, basically a load of exhibition games or you'll be seen yeah. as an innovator, et cetera. That's the worry. Maybe maybe they won't be able to move fast enough. Maybe they'll be too big for that. I think Germany are doing the right thing here. Mm. Um, but, you know, it, it's obviously a positive. I just also worry that they're already complaining that they're behind the Premier League. And it's like, well, if you want to set yourselves even further behind, then... That's Don't pay as much. As you said, it would have to be a, a kind of consensus across Europe and those major leagues at least. I mean, what, what do you think, Dave? Could this be a positive or, as Lawrence points out, the practical implications mean it's a, it's an impossible pipe dream? I think it needs to be done, really. I think that's the side of it. It just needs to happen. I think you mean this globally, is the of what it should be. Do you mean globally? Globally, it should happen. Yeah, I think globally it should happen. I think we're almost getting to a point anyway with a salary cap related because, you know, the transfer market is getting to a point where it will level out. I think it will just be, you know, player trades is going to be where it goes. I don't, I think you get to a point where money's not a problem. Like if the Premier League is a three, four billion pound industry, what's the point of selling your best player to, you know, what's, what's the point of uh, Leicester selling Madison, Sun Chu, Ndidi to Manchester United, to Liverpool, to Chelsea. They're, they're losing the competitive advantage there. And that's where football's going anyway. So bringing a salary cap in may speed that up. And I think that's kind of what we need to happen. I think the money in football is crazy. I think transfer fees are crazy. And it something needs to be done because it's not just the Premier League. It's everything. It's the whole Football League structure that a salary cap 
would mean that teams don't go bankrupt and go bust and, and you lose the something that you've loved for 10 years or 20 years or 50 years. I think that's kind of the important side is the implications around it. Why Germany are uh, you know, pushing for it is because obviously they've got that model in place, the 50, uh, 50 plus one rule. They're already pretty much geared towards doing that. German youth football is unbelievable in terms of competitiveness and how it is as a as a thing. And that's where they come. They bring young players through and they go. And that's what I'd like to see more in, in the United Kingdom is more players coming through from your local area. It does incentivize that, doesn't people. it, Dave? Because obviously, and it doesn't, yeah, yeah. And it, I think that's the side. You have to. And I think, but I think that's coming anyway because, like I said, what's the point in selling? Why would you sell Neymar if you're PSG? Why would you sell Kevin De Bruyne if you're Man City? You just don't. So there'll be a level where you'll start getting to a point where why are you selling your third choice centre back? Because it's going to make this team better, and they're competing to us for this position. Because it will, you know, crunch. We're seeing the investment Newcastle now, so there's now going to be like a top eight. There will be a top ten, then it'll be a top twenty, and then all the Premier League clubs will be ridiculous. And then what's the point in player transfers? And then we might have to see a draft system brought in. I think that's where it could go because of how we've built it and how we've grown this beast. I, think, I can't see it I think continuing as it is. A, it just doesn't make sense. A draft system would be difficult um i mean it, it just in the uk um because the grassroots and what lays below football clubs isn't and isn't good enough so there isn't really a, a level that no one can in, in america you have the college system and you know you have mm. quite, a, quite a good structure apart from the fact that players aren't paid fairly what they're sort of owed but you know there's a good structure in terms of coaching and, and those sort of, that doesn't really exist in the uk but i do think it will like dave's right it essentially mean that lower down you will have to put more money into getting these players to be better. So you'll want to see players are basically teams will look at Trent Alexander Arnold, they'll look at all, you know, those kind of players and go, right, how can we develop that? So, so, so see it in a European Super League perspective, right? So if that comes here we go, Botwood. There'll Wait. be tw- twenty teams, mm-hmm. twenty teams that will be the best teams, right? And then all the other leagues could be used in this draft system. Oh, where, sounds dystopian. Sounds like a where nightmare. You, you have you have twenty you have twenty teams, and you know I'm drawing. I'm getting Burnley's best centre forward because he's been the best player in the English football league <laughs> for the last year. He's scored fifty goals. I guess that's also a cultural thing, though, isn't it? Because whilst that might work in the states, where it's like, right, you know, this guy went to Texas Tech or whatever, and then he ends up being drafted, there isn't quite the same. Maybe it'll be a cultural change and big in the UK, but there isn't mm. the, the the sense of loyalty in the UK of a player playing for Burnley for all that time and then uh, going to a Liverpool or going to a Newcastle I'd, United I'd question, when they make is it. Is it? I'd say, is it? D- Dave, I think culturally there are just too many people, and because of the close the geographical closeness of the cities in the UK, and you like I say, if you lay Texas over Europe or you lay Texas over the UK, then it would be very similar to almost like a player that grew up in, to take Texas, grew up in Houston, going to, um, you know, San Antonio or, you know, or or, or Dallas or something like that. A really good example, Danny Ings. Danny Ings, right? So a Man United fan, plays for Burnley, Liverpool are interested, moves to Liverpool. Yeah. So that's kind of an example of a but player. Ne- that but he's be never played though. But, he, but he's never played though for Manchester United, is what I'm saying. And the difference is, mm, obviously, that's a fair point. privately you can think one thing and play another way. But I think there is a difference when you're going between. I mean, we're, we're completely arguing about a hypothetical uh, draft system <laughs> in the European Super League. Isn't I love it. I'm <laughs> the into European it. Super I'm League. Into it. But, um, <laughs> but hypothetically and culturally, I just think it's so 
different. You imagine how cool this would be, right? Yeah. So Jaden Sancho is the best young player in the Premier League. Yeah. Man United have had a rotten season in the European Super League. Yeah. And then they get Jaden Sancho from Manchester City. Yeah. Imagine that. That'd be <laughs> bloody right. It'd be wild, wouldn't it? I mean, the only problem with that is Man Manchester City United, aren't the feeder club. Pick. Man City aren't the feeder club, Jayden Dave. Jaden Sancho. It, and <laughs> what might be even worse for you, Dave, is if Rashford has a great season for Manchester United, the feeder go, club bang. for Man City in the European Super League. Excuse me? You're a feeder club, Dave. No, absolutely not, mate. That's the future. That's the future. It's the, 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 fu- the future, Dave. Are you so excited about the European Super League anymore? I think yeah. not. <laughs> hang on, hang on. I'm not sure about this. Keep the money where the money is, Lawrence. <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> Let's finish up by talking about the last dance, the greatest sports documentary of all time, oh. Lawrence. Uh, it was definitely up there, Boltwood. I think uh, in terms of insight um, it, and entertainment and oh. the emotion, I mean, Did I think uh, you know, a few people have said it, but the I I was brought to tears a few time, Jules, and, uh, t- times during this documentary. Maybe it's because I feel so close with some of these people and obviously being an NBA fan, but uh, no, the I Steve Kerr Steve Kerr story yeah, was, very emotional. I think as, as a man as well, when you think about your relationship with your own father, those kind of things. Uh, you you can't help but be touched by what Steve Kerr went through, and for me, it was more touching in a way than the um, the Michael Jordan shooting story because I felt that Steve Kerr was so he has a vulnerability about him which is uh, very easy yeah. to empathise with. And I wasn't aware of Steve Kerr at all in terms of his character, right. so it was a really nice episode to kind of kind of show the different facets of him and his story. Um, it was out the blue as well, didn't it? Of course, yeah. As you're sort of saying, it's, I watched it with my wife and she doesn't care about right. basketball at all, but she loved right. it. She got emotional at certain right. episodes. She really got invested in it because um, it is a fantastic yeah. series. It is, it is incredibly made. There's so many interviews and so much depth to it. You know, the the, the footage itself is amazing. Um, the variety the footage of footage is genuinely incredible. Yeah, amazing. From the time it was shot, like you imagine the logistics back then of shooting that sort of thing. And you're just like... Yeah, it's, How it's does unbelievable. How even happen? How do you even get this done? Yeah, There is that very accessible story. It's about success, about determination. It's about making yourself the best it can be. But did it feel, to, to someone like myself, my wife, who aren't familiar with basketball at all, or the story beyond, beyond the broad strokes and the, the facts of, you know, Jordan is considered the greatest of all time. He won this many championships, etc. As a huge basketball fan yourself, did it feel as revelatory and as insightful to someone like me who isn't as familiar? Um, I, I guess because I wasn't old enough at that time to uh, consider some of the concepts, it maybe reinforced some of those things because I was, I was maybe, I would have been 10 at the time. And, uh, you know, you're aware of Michael Jordan and you're aware of Space Jam and those kind of things, but you aren't really aware in the same way as you would be aware now or as an adult watching that guy. And I think it reinforces a lot of why uh, you know, especially if you're in the United States, you've got a direct line to this kind of thing or a much closer connection to that sort of thing. I think that's what I found inspiring about it or I found interesting because then you draw lines out of that where you think, well, you know, Kobe Bryant almost immediately followed Michael Jordan. Uh, you know, there were lots of other sporting figures who say they're inspired by him. And I think uh, to be, uh, he swept a lot of the people away in a wave, which I think people almost couldn't have anticipated in basketball because it was like, wait, how has this taken the, the world by storm? Whereas before people saw it um, as just basketball. 
and you know it was a bit of a niche it felt a bit more niche and i think now in this generation we know basketball for what it is which is like a global sport everyone knows lebron james's name everyone knows you know maybe you'll know who steph curry is maybe you'll know a couple of the top line um basketball players but i think basketball didn't always have this kudos it didn't always have this uh, star studded image that it has mm. now and I think Michael Jordan was a huge part of that revolution and changing that, along with obviously the 92 uh, Dream Team and those sorts of things. Yeah. It, but he was a, a driving force behind that globally. And obviously, what a figure to be alongside, whether you think he's an asshole and a bully or, you know, whether you think it was necessary. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. This is the thing, because I think, as you said, it's really interesting. Is there's the story of the NBA as an element and how it became this this global sport. Obviously, the story of the Chicago Bulls and all the different players there. But it is really yeah. about Michael Jordan. What do you think we learn about him? Because as you said, he's, he's a man who's kind of devoted to winning at any expense. That's clear. Sometimes at the expense of basic decency, you might say. Uh, some might call him yeah. a bully. Some might say that he drove the people around him to become the best they could be. The championships speak for themselves uh, as, as a response to that. But it does ask that question, which I think is really interesting, is do you have to be that ruthless? Do you have to be that single-minded to achieve unimaginable peaks of, of sporting achievement? I think, um, you know what it did? Uh, to address Michael Jordan individually, I think Michael Jordan played a very important part and was a very important cog and a massive cog in the Bulls mechanism. Um, I think if it happened now, <laughs> I think a lot of people just wouldn't do it. They'd just be like that, you know, we'd hear the leaks from inside the dressing room. Michael Jordan's a bully. It would be framed differently because the way that we see men now and the way that we see roles in teams and in society is different. And in many ways, you wonder whether you had to go through those phases in order to get to the conclusion that we're at now. Um, but also it shows that teams need balance. You know, Scotty Pippen was an incredibly calm, uh, you know, um, he was needed. He was incredibly calm. He was also incredibly technically proficient. He was also incredibly good at what he did. And it showed that you need that balance. And obviously when you see Phil Jackson speaking as a coach in the series, you see a man who... Um, you know, is, is incredibly balanced, is very centered, has a lot about him that is incredibly respectable. Um, and in many ways, I, I, you know, I think there's a bit of disrespect around Phil Jackson now because of what happened with the Knicks and uh, later on in his career when people basically went, oh, you've lost it. But he, you know, I mean, I think what it doesn't say is obviously Phil Jackson talks in the documentary, you know, this is the end. And obviously he, you know, we'd all love to be able to write our own stories, but uh it was the end for the Bulls and Phil Jackson and they burned, you know, everything they did in that coffee uh, tin. Phil Jackson went on to manage Kobe Bryant almost immediately, I think a year after that, and then has multiple championships with Kobe as well. Um, so it's not as if that was the end for Phil, you know, it wasn't if that, that was the last thing that Phil ever did that was at the, the very top of the game. And it wasn't as if that was what Michael Jordan, that, you know, where Michael Jordan peaked because Michael Jordan's now an entrepreneur, a businessman. He owns his own team. Obviously, the team isn't particularly successful at this moment. It's, it is interesting you say, touch on those points of, of legacy almost because they've all gone on to do different things after... Steve After Kerr the won two more was... championships, by the way. Yeah, yeah I, I read up. He's yeah. the he was the coach of the the Golden State Warriors, right? As well. Yeah, which which was also possibly you know usurped this um, Bulls team as 
possibly exactly, the greatest yeah. team of all time. So. But it's interesting to think about the question of legacy and, and how people are remembered and, and what their story is with uh, the perspective of, as of any documentary, as of any story, who's creating it? What, what, mm-hmm. what is the, the message that's being put forward? How trustworthy is it? Um, I thought it was interesting to see Horace Grant, who's a character who, who <laughs> appears in a documentary, someone who won three titles alongside Jordan at the Chicago Bulls. He said the documentary was lies, lies, lies. I believe it was all bullshit. It was edited to make Jordan look better. The story is that Jordan and the NBA had the, the final say about when and how the footage from the 97-98 season was used. They did, which is yeah. The, they, well, the basically, the backbone of the yeah. documentary. But there's, there was a was... DVD that was sent out to multiple people, apparently. And obviously, I think, you know, some some of the guys who did 30 for 30 as a documentary and Bill Simmons and those kind of guys saw the DVD tried to convince Mike. And then there is the story. I don't know if you're going to, sorry, I cut you off. Are you going to get into the story of Michael Jordan is sitting back watching the victory parade of LeBron James (laughs) and calls whoever it is. I think it's 2016 calls, whoever it is that's got that, um, got that footage and just goes, I'm doing it. And it's like, (laughs) right. It's the ultimate competitor. Yeah, definitely. And you know, <laughs> I think there's there's something to consider and, and be mindful of as to the, the motives behind the documentary is Michael Jordan putting his case forward yeah. over 10 hours as to why he is the greatest player of all time. It's infotainment, like I said. You know, it's it's it's, enter, it's en- it docutainment, whatever you want to call it. But, but it, it is still insightful. It is. And I think it gives all those different stories, as you said. And there's different players, There's there's different perspectives that I think flesh it out in a, in a more full-bodied way. And I think the, the, the takeaway about Jordan's character is very true to who he is. It's not necessarily manufactured in a way that, that hides those flaws or, or glosses over them. He does come across, I think, to, to a lot of people as a bully. He does come across as someone who, as his own teammates say, was an arsehole. Yes, perhaps a documentary paints that as being a necessary byproduct of being the greatest of all time and dragging the Chicago Bulls team to, to those championships. But I think, you know, as with any documentary and with any sort of non-fiction and same, you're the, the, the facts and the, the, the pieces are put in front of you from a certain point of view, and it's up to you to, to look at that and decide your own opinion, decide your own conclusions from it. And, and also, I think we realize now that a documentary doesn't just exist as a one-off documentary where people go, right, well, that was very entertaining and informative. Mm. Thank you very much. People, like you said, they, yeah. They, yeah, and they go off and they they read, they go on Twitter, they read articles like you have, they read up on Steve Kerr, they read about Horace Grant, they read about, um, you know, probably Phil Jackson, all these different uh, characters, and also obviously Dennis Rodman. Um, and I think it doesn't just exist in isolation anymore. I mean, you know, the, the big criticism is of Jordan in this. It's like, and I think I had this discussed on Bill Simmons podcast Well, his wife wasn't in it or well, his ex-wife wasn't in it. And it's like, well, yeah, but there's got to be a point where you sort of go, right, well, I'm making a documentary. Do I go back to my ex-wife? Or we don't even know if he went to his ex-wife and went, will you be and in it? And she went, nah. Like, There's there's almost something perfect about it, though, because it's it's clear Michael Jordan only really cares about basketball and how his life revolves around basketball. So there's yeah. something perfect about the fact his family, <laughs> apart from his children who are in, in one episode, aren't really in it because Michael Jordan is obsessed and only cares about the game. Uh, and yeah. his achievements there, in, in a sense. Um, I would have loved to hear a little bit about that. I would have loved to hear, I guess, for me, it was, I get the the in-game moments. Those are really great mm. and insightful to hear about. And it's amazing. And there is actually a documentary coming out today, on Wednesday, 20th of May, as we um, record this, that 
is about game six against the Utah Jazz. But it's oh, sort yeah. of, it, it's basically, I think it's told from both teams' perspectives. Obviously, Jordan had such a game there, but they're also, they're against Malone and Stockton and great, great players. And, you know, they were considered a real challenge for the Bulls at that time. And um, uh, I, I guess I want a bit more insight of what happened around that. I want to hear from his kids I love hearing from families or, you know, even the manager who, or a player who's able to reflect and go, yeah, I am terrible when I've lost a game hmm. or, it, you know, I go home and I'm in a foul mood and my wife puts a, uh, or my, you know, my husband, you know, if they're a gay football, mm-hmm. puts uh, the kettle on and goes, let's just, you know, you can relax, honey. Don't worry about it. And I guess part of it is also seeing, uh, and I guess for me, I guess what I love about Steve Kerr and what I knew about Steve Kerr watching this documentary was Steve Kerr had had the best perspective possibly looking back of any of the players in that time, at least for me, because he'd had the closeness with Michael. He'd had the feeling outside the circle. He'd had the feeling inside the circle. He'd been coached by Phil Jackson, one of the three greatest coaches of all time. He'd also been coached by Greg Popovich, one of the three greatest coaches of all time. And he'd also coached one of the three greatest teams of all time. And, you know, Steph Curry, one of the greatest players of all time, alongside Clay and KD, probably one of the three greatest players of all time. So this guy had been close and had that perspective on all of this and um, was able to reflect on a lot of that. And I guess that's, what I love is it exists now, not in the nineties. It exists now looking back mm. and in the, in, you know, in a bit of the frame of toxic masculinity, all this kind of thing. And I guess what it shows me and what Steve, why I spoke about Steve Kerr is uh, Steve Kerr took all those things that he learned from Michael Jordan and possibly learned things not to do with your great players. You know, don't encourage them to be assholes or when they are assholes, Deal with it in this way, you know, deal with it. Let it out. Don't let that fester. Don't let, you know, don't let those things uh, lay under because now he has a player called Draymond Green, very vocal player, very aggressive player who, you know, is very vocal about other players on the team. And Steve Kerr apparently just lets it out. We'll have the debate with him in front of everyone. And that level of toxic masculinity or whatever you want to call it, even if you just want to call it male anger, whatever you want Mm. to call it, ego, is, is dealt with in a very different way. And I think the problem was that dickheads and morons look at Michael Jordan. And I know this directly from dickheads and morons that I've spoken to about the documentary and go, that is how you are successful. That is success. Like Mm. you have to plunder and bully your way to get through it. And I am that man. But it's what they miss because Michael Jordan makes it all look so effortless is that Michael Jordan was so great at basketball and your shitty venture that you're 50% as good as, you know, the next guy at Mm. isn't the Chicago bulls and Michael Jordan, (laughs) like slightly different context, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) And and that's the problem. I think it's learning lessons in context and, you know, that's what I love about Twitter is it gives you instant other perspectives and instant other context of people making fun of Michael Jordan about him crying about all these kind of things. It gives you that distance from Michael and the documentary not to just go, right, time to go smash some heads. Like, <laughs> that's what's good about it. And that's why I love that they left Steve Kerr's emotional story. Yeah. Because I felt, oh, they've told all these stories. And I for- almost forgot about Steve Kerr's 
uh, input so late because it hits you when you're thinking, right, they're on the run now. These guys can go and win a championship. I'm watching that run. And mm. suddenly you're hit with, even now, like, I'm, you know, I've got goosebumps thinking about it. It's like, suddenly you're hit with, oh, and by the way, like, this, this guy's father died so tragically and, you know, mm. he wishes he could have changed things. That's such a contrast in terms of sport. It's amazing. You rarely ever see it. Yeah, the, the, that human element. And I think it is, it's an absolutely fascinating documentary. It's, it's a fantastic watch as well. So highly recommend it. It's on Netflix uh, in the UK, I believe. Did it make you, you want to watch, watch basketball? It did. It, it helped me understand the game a lot more. Um, definitely made me fascinated to potentially get into it when it comes back. Um, wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued did to see if they do. Did it make make a documentary? Um, yeah, about Spurs and Pochettino. But we'll come on to that with Dave before we bring him off mute. Sure. So I, I do want to talk about potential sure. football last dances, as it were. But finally, just to finish up, we had a question from uh, Bakalakar99, who said, is the last dance the best sports documentary of all time? The only other ones he can think of that could rival it are the Maradona documentary and Icarus. I've never actually watched either of those, but uh, they're on my list now because um, they've got incredible uh, plaudits as well. Senna. Is, a, is an F1 documentary I've watched, which so I believe it's the same director as Maradona. So it's the pedigree. And there. Amy. Uh, yeah, Amy as well. You, you, directed. you get his, he's got his one name documentaries down. If, if you know, LeBron James <laughs> ever does one, it's going to be tricky. Do you see James? Yeah. Uh, I've never seen Hoop Dreams. Hoop Dreams is considered one of the greatest sports documentaries of all time. I think I came out Hoop Dreams was good, yeah. When We Were Kings, I've watched a long time ago, the Muhammad Ali documentary. That, uh, would, that was uh, recommended to me. I, I hadn't seen that uh, until very recently. And um, yeah, I think it's up there. The Two Escobars is also a great uh, documentary, which is, uh, I mean, it's just amazing piece. You got I don't want to ruin that. You got to go and watch that. No. Um, Pumping Iron. There, there are a lot of them. You would probably iron. say it's the greatest of all time. Arnold Schwarzenegger's was, formative years as a bodybuilder. There was one called, Touching the Void was also a really good one that I watched. Oh, yeah. Like, I've listed, That's the mountain. I knew you were going to ask me this. Yeah, so I've, I've listed quite a few of them. It's, it's pretty amazing. There are, there are some good ones. But in terms of insight and maybe um, overall structure and also just a yeah. person that you want to know about, like, you know, it's Michael... Jordan, Michael fucking Jordan. That's yeah. where it goes. That's where it, it goes to the next level. Uh, alongside we we were kings, which is obviously uh, got Ali there. So I think you know he sits in that pantheon with those that level of athlete, doesn't he? Dave had to put himself on mute for all of that, by the way, because he hasn't seen the last dance. He was avoiding spoilers, so he sat there very diligently. Thank you, Dave. Um, I did want to ask you though, if uh, <laughs> if as I'm sure they will now, if the Premier League, if broadcasters around the country decide, you know, we need our own last dance. We need to chronicle at least 10 years of the greatest player or the greatest team in football history. Which teams? Uh, I can imagine your answer already. Which teams or which players or which managers would you like such a documentary to focus on? Think about how good this would be, right? Roy Keane. Oh, wow. He, oh. He's, the, he's the one that it's centred around. How good would that be? Do you know? Thinking Clough at, at Notts Forest, then Fergie at Man United. The only thing about Roy Keane... I think that would be very interesting is I feel like, uh, and this is where the the interest of The Last Dance comes from. I hadn't heard all those stories for it. It's kind of revelatory hearing mm. all these stories. I feel like I know Roy Keane quite well. I know his character. I know all of the ups and downs of his career to an extent. But that's what I think. I think, I think we perceive that we oh. know. Okay, right. Roy Keane, The Last Dance. A good shout. It's a good shout. Yeah. 
Lawrence, if you if you he's a Jordan-esque figure as well, isn't he, uh, Rookie? Mm, in controversial, a team. got that personality. Yeah, okay, yeah. Hates the people around him, but also then <laughs> you know does does that thing where he go he is a, a real dick to them, but then he goes brings only make you better. <laughs> and you're like, um, that, that, yeah, that he's crying Rookie, actually, right? Roy. Oh, I tell you what, the the episode about Saipan and him walking out on the on the World Cup would be incredible. To be fair, oh yeah, so. yeah, that would be that would be sensational. Was Roy Keane in the Manchester United team when David Beckham uh, had his uh, Sir Alex kicked the foot, the boot at David Beckham? I'm sure. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I think Keane left yeah. United in 2005. Yeah, mm. yeah. I think that so boot he, incident that, would have happened previously. Well, I think yeah, I think it did, didn't it? I think, and I think. Yeah, I'm um, pretty sure it did. I think it would that it's things like that. That's what I want to see. I don't just want to see because the last answer is obviously about so, not solely about Michael Jordan. But it looks at the teammates around him. I think that's what would have made that documentary so fascinating. Is you know obviously Roy Keane is the <laughs> weirdly becomes the Michael Jordan figure in a team with uh, David Beckham, Paul Scholes, yeah, yeah. Uh, Gary Neville. Um, I guess Eric Cantona, people like that as well. And um, yeah, he would have seen the boot, lads. He would have seen the boot. Two thousand three, it yeah. says. Yeah. What? Um, yeah. Who would be your potential pick, Lawrence, for a, a Last Dance style treatment? Well, in many ways, I've had my Last Dance style documentary in uh, what I got with the Brendan Rogers documentary. It was a truly <laughs> insightful piece. I forgot about that. that. That was the greatest sporting documentary of all time. Sorry. I'm, I'm really surprised that Michael Jordan at any point didn't go at the start of the season. I had three envelopes. <laughs> um, and you're like, wait, Michael, what? And he's like, yeah, Brendan Rogers came to me in a dream. Yeah. Scott um, Burrell's name was in every envelope. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess uh, th- there's a lot of teams that I'd like to see it about. I think I would like to see it about an AC Milan side because I find that AC Milan team, you know, the, the old school AC Milan team, the Brazies and those kind of players, or even the Rude Hullet or, you know, that kind of era where there is that bit of machismo, there is a little bit of something to get some insight on. Because I don't really enjoy the clinical documentaries. The, um, I didn't, you know, whilst I enjoyed seeing Inside Manchester City, it felt a little bit too clinical to me. Yeah. A little well, bit I believe, too like, bloody propaganda, style. you mean, Lawrence? And I think also what we're forgetting here, and something that we sort of mentioned, Boltwood, in the chat that we had, is these aren't, these aren't journalistic documentaries. These are what we call sort of infotainment or docutainment, whatever you want to call it. Um, because a lot of the time people are trying to portray an image in the documentary 20 years out, you know, 30 years out, that it wasn't that bad. Or, you know, well, we get along now. And there's there's a bit of, um, you know, we're just trying to prove the person we are now rather than the person we were back then. And that's what I think is so good about this documentary, that The Last Dance, is that, Jordan is laying it all out there and not, whilst maybe we don't believe every, every story to, you know, to hundred percent accuracy. I think we do think, right, at least we're seeing him cry here. At least we're seeing him uh, emotionally open up about some things and we're getting an insight. That's what I want is the insight into a winning mentality. Interesting. Um, I what about think, you? Well, Pochettino. on that point, I, I, from a selfish point of view, I would love to see that. I would love to see the last dance of, of Pochettino's final season of Spurs, the greatest season Spurs are ever going to have in my lifetime, wow. it seems. But um, because it would have been of... bizarre, though, surely, Boltwood, that you would have keep you would have it would have been weird if when Pochettino's walking around, he goes, 
the last dance and everyone goes <laughs> sorry are you not staying <laughs> for the next yeah. and he's like it's my but, last dance <laughs> i think there's some you know a part of the appeal of the last dance someone who isn't familiar with basketball is all the ups and downs and the twists and turns of those seasons right. plenty in that final season at spurs if not Pochettino's entire tenure at the club um i think there's some interesting stories that and and points about his character that might come out I don't know if you guys mm-hmm. have seen in the, the book Guillaume Balaguer did, there's a stories about how Pochettino has uh, bowls of lemons in his office to yeah. suck up and absorb negative energy. I think he's That's a more good. interesting character and there's some interesting facets to his uh, personality mm-hmm. and be interesting to explore. But, suck um, up those haters. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It didn't quite work. I'd, but um, I'd, Yeah, I'd love to do Klopp at Dortmund. I think that would be a mm-hmm. fascinating one. Klopp I'd at Dortmund would be incredible. The, the Invincible season as well, even as a Spurs fan sort of pulling that curtain back on on Wenger, given everything that happened to him after that season and, and kind of the legacy he had at Arsenal there would be interesting. But um, let us know on Twitter, at the front free, which last dance style documentaries do you want to see on football, the Premier League and beyond? We'd love to hear Galactico, from you. That, the Galacticos? The, Galact- yeah. the Galacticos one to me would be a bit too much ass covering where it would all be like, yeah, it was just so great to play fault. the guys. And, yeah, it was all so lovely just to be able to pass to Roberto Carlos and you know who I'm doing. That's and an then, interesting you know, also And Zidane and, and those guys. It was just great to play with all the greats. And you're like, well, yeah, but you know when that time you fell out? Yeah, Is it was that- just water under the bridge now. No, <laughs> tell me what an arsehole this person was. Like, tell me how Zidane you won. Zidane, if yeah. Zidane got involved, he, he would have no qualms about How many it. titles did, I, I suppose the problem is, how many titles did that team actually win? Didn't they win one title? In the I time? think they fought, they, they, I think that team was a, was was rubbish. I thought they won one. They won one, one, t- under, I know, they won, yeah, they won one, one title and that was it. They didn't yeah. win yeah. Capella, That, that team should be winning the Champions League is my point, basically, was my, my yeah. thought behind it. And they didn't. So that's why I'd say that they were failures. I only want to see winners. I want to see people who ultimately... <laughs> I mean, that's also part of it, obviously. If you win, and I think, you know, but you spoke about that earlier on the last night. If you win, it's very easy to look back mm. and go, oh, well, it was all worth it. But if you lose, then you go, fucking hell, this guy was crazy. Like, we, <laughs> we yeah. lost and I went through all that. It's like, but maybe that's that's part of it. And I think that's, uh, you know, part of being a coach and maybe what Pochettino sort of was very good at was even if we're not immediately winning, we're building towards something, you're becoming a better player. I always felt like Jose Mourinho did that very well. And that's someone I'd love to see the first oh. season at Chelsea Ooh. or the last Porto. season at Porto. Let's see. Uh, incredible. Let's see what so, the Amazon all or nothing documentary is like. Eh? Let's see if that's uh, an interesting. Oh, is, interesting that, is that happening with Jose? It's happening, well, it's all about this season. So, yeah, it's going to have Jose coming in, oh Pochettino going out. God. And obviously this uh, this whole situation we've got now, which should be interesting, That's, to say the least. I'd also, I'd love to see uh, Bobby Robson's season on camera as well. I'd love to see what he's like behind the behind the scenes, just what kind of character he is. Yeah. And the same Reno, as obviously Sir Alex. In the background. Did you guys um, see that, um, the clip the other day of, uh, I think it was Harry Redknapp talking about how he was so he was not obviously not friendly with every manager, but he was so friendly with Sir Alex before the game at about two o'clock or five to two. He'd go in, they'd share a little drink, and then they'd bet on the two o'clock and then the two fifteen and the, on oh, yeah. all the horses. And Sir Alex would be sitting there going, "Oh come on!" And he'd go, "No, I've got to go. Got to go give the team talk, mate." Uh, my Harry impression, my David Beckham impression, are very similar. And yeah. but Sir, Sir Alex would be like, uh, "No, come on, have you know bet on another horse." And that was how laid back Sir Alex Ferguson was before a game. Whereas, obviously, wow. you know, you get the opposite with other managers. That's like, the sort know, of story I want to see. 
in a 10-part documentary on Netflix. Um, I've, yeah, I've actually been to a uh, race day with Harry Redknapp, and I can see that 100% happening. Oh, yeah? That sounds about right. I mean, yeah. did, did he turn to you, Dave, and go, you remind me of a young Sir Alex Ferguson? <laughs> <laughs> he, did, he, did he, did, no. he said it with his eyes, Lawrence. He said it with his eyes. Yeah, his eyes seem to say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there is, of course, there, there is the sad uh, clip that I sent to both of you about um it's got neil ruddock and paul merson <laughs> i was just going to bring this up i never thought i'd say this yeah. but lawrence you want to talk about paul merson yeah i do i mean it's it, it's um it's something that sort of stuck with me for quite a while because uh when i was younger my mum used to do like workshops in terms of um like yoga and these kind of things with her partner right and they would have people come along to the workshops and one day she just said to me and I, i'd need to find out who it is but i'm Who's the guy, Boltwood, who had like the mullet who played for Spurs? Grey haired mullet, uh, retired. Oh, Chris you know Waddle. Chris Waddle? I think it wasn't Chris, it wasn't Chris Waddle, but it was it was Grey someone hair. similar to Chris Waddle. Was he a Scottish guy? Jerry Francis was the manager of the Magnificent. It might, it might sorry, it might have been Jerry Francis then uh, that came along. It, it was who, magnificent. Um and basically he turned up and the whole weekend apparently he basically complained about the fact that his knees were so bad from playing, mm. but also from the times when they used to train. And um, if someone did something wrong, then they would make them get another player on their back and do the rest of training with a player on their back. And he was like, but my knees, they're gone. And mum was always like, yeah. And that's kind of the culture that I saw in football, that it, there was all this needless uh, macho mm. uh, bravado that ruined people's lives later on. And I was watching this documentary uh, clip on YouTube of Paul Merson challenging Neil Ruddock with David Seaman and weirdly Ma Mark Wright, who just looks like a you know, generic dad who's come to pick up their son from your house. He's the guy, um, the reality TV star, star guy. No, no, not Mark Wright. The footballer Mark Wright. Oh, Mark Wright? okay. I was yeah. going to say that. Really, I was very confused every second. Go on. And they're, they're away in some country on what is called like Terry Venable's road trip or something like that. And they're all sitting in a restaurant and uh, basically they're sort of having a, it's like an impromptu um, intervention for Neil Ruddock mm -hmm. because he was so drunk. And, uh, you know, Merce goes, uh, mate, you were paralytic last night. And he was like, I wasn't paralytic. He's like, you had a bra on your head, mate. And he's like, I wasn't. And he's like, if you don't stop, you're going out that door. And they fall out. And it, it's, I text it to a couple of friends and a few of them just messaged me back like, this is really tragic because these guys were once heroes of so many people. And now at least half of the group that is sitting around that table are either alcoholic and do accept it or were alcoholic and can't accept it, et cetera, et cetera. And it was just tragic to see these older guys who were once such, you know, Paul Merson was a fantastic footballer and Neil Ruddock was not a fantastic footballer, but was good enough to be, you know, at some top teams in the Premier League in that time. And it was just really tragic to see these guys who had sort of been through so much and were now mm. so desperate to be the way they are that they're almost doing it to the detriment of everyone else around them. And it's a really tragic clip because they all just start crying. Like Merson's crying, Neil Ruddock's crying. And they, it's wow. just because he's just such a, such a top bloke. He's just such a top bloke. And you're like, he, I mean, he is a top bloke, but I, I don't know what happened. The problem is that the clip stops. And I was like, what happened after this? Did they go, yes, <laughs> Neil, you need help? Or did they just go, oh, I'm glad that's all over. Should we all go back yeah, to another drink? drink. 
Yeah. <laughs> Watch the next episode. Yeah, that's why I, I didn't really know. But it, it was just kind of tragic because Neil Ruddock was obviously a beloved player at Liverpool at one point. Not, you know, not held to our hearts, but mm. he was a good player. Um, and then obviously Paul Merson is kind of a tragic character anyway. Yeah, in many ways. I'd love to watch that. I think it sounds interesting. I'll actually watch the full in- the full episode. But there's something, it's as you say, there's something sad about that, but also something positive, I guess, about expressing themselves and able to confront some of them, able to confront those moments with perspective and with yeah. reality as well. And But also as older men looking back uh, on, on their lives and going, God, I made a mistake there. I shouldn't have done that. Then you can see like the sadness in Paul Merson when he does that. And Neil Ruddock's a little bit more happy-go-lucky, a little bit more sort of like, we live for... And I think Paul Merson actually said it. He's like, you know, a man who lives for tomorrow. It's like, I'll, I'll do it tomorrow, I'll do it tomorrow, and today mm. I'll have a drink, or today we're just having a good time. And then... Uh, and then I got into a series of clips just about Neil Ruddock after that, where it was like Neil Ruddock on... on <laughs> and Neil uh, Ruddock celebra- as you There was one where it was like celebrity bailiffs, and they had to call on Neil Ruddock because he hadn't paid kennels fees for his dogs when they're on holiday. Um, wow. And... I, I met Neil Ruddock and I really liked him, but uh, I, and he even in the clip he's sort of very personable. But his wife is like, "Get away from our house!" Like throwing water on the, oh the playlists and stuff. And then when Neil Ruddock's being interviewed about it after, he's like, "Yeah, she shouldn't have thrown the water, but you know, you guys shouldn't have done it." Like it was it's so that's bizarre sad, to see. It? It's, yeah, that's what I'm saying. And I guess if I if it was me who was going through that, I wouldn't want to hear someone on a podcast talking about it. But these people are held up as heroes, I guess. And you know you. I guess sometimes it sort of idolizes behavior, which it normalizes, like, you know, going out. If those, if those guys can go out and get drunk, then I can go out and get absolutely blottoed and, like, you know, mm. it's all fine. And that that was what sort of struck me. It was quite, it was tragic, really. Hmm. I'll give it a watch. What a note know. to end on. Yeah. And on that note, guys, yeah. uh, that does end this week's Front Free Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed it. Do leave us your reviews on iTunes. Remember, put your spirit footballers in. We read out the best on next week's episode. Leave us your tweets at the Front Free as well. Uh, Dave, thank you very much. Have a great day. Hey, You're interviewing. Uh, is this a secret or can I say this? Thomas Granmark. Liverpool's throwing coach. That's he's a bit of a controversial Ooh. character. So that, I've I've seen some uh, some interesting conversations crop up around him. Dave, ask him ask him what it's like to be around the greatest Premier League coach of all time. Dave is not responding. Uh, I'm responding now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, right, you can hear the clack of the keyboard. Yeah, you're, you're best manager. Second, Writing that down on his, his invisible typewriter. Manager. Yeah, got it, Lawrence. Typewriter. Second best. I'm glad that you do regard yeah. Jose Mourinho so highly, Dave. It's fantastic. Um, <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you next week. Thank you very much, and stay safe. And not in the literal sense. Yeah, stay in a safe. 